Our sponsor for this session is GR Energy Services. Completion, production, and water management. Please visit their page in our sponsor showcase tab. Hi, I'm Steve Toon, editor of Oil & Gas Investor Magazine. I'm joined here today with Tom Petrie, founder and chairman of Denver-based Petrie Partners. The old phrase, we live in interesting times, has never been as appropriate as it is today, particularly for the oil and gas space. We're in the early days of a new presidency with a bias against fossil fuels. The COVID demand destruction persists as cases are rising in various parts of the world. OPEC and Russia still exert an uneasy push and pull on global supplies. And lo and behold, international gas markets are starting to look pretty good. We are fortunate that Tom studies the nuances of the macro and is here today to shed some light on what American producers can expect from this volatile landscape. So Tom. Thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I think this is my third or fourth participation in some of the hard virtual conferences. And uh, this is a particularly important one because it's so timely relative to the installation, as you point out, of, of the new administration. Uh, what I want to share with you today is some thoughts about uh, the markets and, and money, uh, the bulls, the bears, and the undecideds that make up uh, people who are voting with their feet and with their dollars in what is still a COVID-19 driven world. And to do that, uh, let's go to the topics, which is the next slide. What I'm going to do is talk about the uh, EMP sector relative performance, then go to the impact of COVID-19 on oil supply demand. That was a big shock, a little, a little less than a year ago. And then we've got the uh, historical petroleum price trends. There's some trends in there that I want to bring to your attention because they are well for where we go from here. Then I'm going to talk about uh, capital rationing and the flow of new capital into the sector. What, what are the requirements that are likely to be out there uh, for that to happen? And then uh, talk about self-correcting forces that are now at work in the pricing uh, dynamics globally, some updated geopolitical realities, and conclude with the case for natural gas, which I think is particularly compelling to deal with some of the challenges that I think are coming up. And then I'll wrap up with some concluding observations and uh, we can open it up to Q&A. This is a, a really interesting uh, diagram because what it captures on the horizontal axis is what we lived through in the last 12 months for various sectors performing uh, relative to other sectors in the, in the marketplace. And what you can see that that red dot or BNP was way over to the left because it was the most adversely impacted single sector making up the other sectors in the market compared to making up the other sectors in the market. And then on the vertical scale, what we have is what's happened in the last two months. So since the election uh, and the knowledge that despite the controversy, there was going to be a change of policy and change of administrations, we see EMP coming back. And that's kind of interesting because it's not necessarily the case that this industry is going to be a favorite choice of the new administration, but the market kind of is concluding that uh, it's going to be so important that it, it, we should give it the benefit of the doubt. And that's what they've been doing the last several weeks for sure. Let's look now at the impact that occurred just about a year ago when the coronavirus hit. We knew about it in January, February. Uh, there, were, there were reports and they became more and more uh, confirmed in March 
we began to realize, look, this is going to have an adverse impact on the demand for oil in the world. And that's what this chart shows. We can really see what a dip occurred in that dark uh, blue line. And as a result of that, the decline in demand was so sharp that an involuntary build in inventories of oil occurred. And that created downward price pressure, really big. And that's what you see in the yellow bars uh, below that. Both in the first quarter, it built up and built up even further in the second quarter. Then we started to get a V-shaped recovery. And, uh, and we were getting back to something more like the old normal, but we haven't gotten there yet. That dotted line at the top of the page uh, was world consumption as it was going on just before the coronavirus hit, a little over 100 million barrels a day. But at the low point, we were down by 15, 16, 17 million barrels a day uh, based on this chart. And then the then we get the sharp recovery and then and then a leveling out of that recovery, the pace of recovery really was was uh, impaired somewhat. Uh, but what we what we've lived through is one of the most dramatic events in the 40 years uh, that I've been doing it as a professional analyst in my in my business career that uh, now spans almost 50 years. Let's look back over 40 of those 50 years to what's happened with other price moves in oil because I think it helps put it in perspective. We had a series of, of events that occurred in the 70s and then in the 80s where prices went up sharply and then down. And then we uh, had another event like that in the late 90s. But then in the last decade or so, we've had three big, highly volatile events. And I put big ovals around them to drive home as big as they were. And they were very big compared to some of the earlier uh, events that we experienced. You can see that with each big move in oil prices down the end up, um, that the magnitude of the ovals is getting smaller. Basically, we're getting better and better at mitigating the effects of disruptive events, geopolitically, or in the case of pandemics, uh, the pandemic effect. Let's talk now about where we are in terms of that shale revolution that's going on here in the US. And this chart that uh, I now have is, is the uh, one that talks about the rig count, the US oil and gas rig count. What you can see here is that a year ago this time, we were almost 700 rigs turning to the right. And uh, those rigs uh, were still adding to our inventory of high pro highly productive oil wells. Once we began to realize it was a problem uh, in March, the, the uh, companies that were drilling cut back very, very sharply. And so less than 700 rigs, just less than 700 rigs, dropped all the way down to just below 200 rigs. And, um, and then it extended through most of the rest of the year. We've had a recovery, a modest recovery since then. But even now, with the recovery that's occurred since uh, August or so uh, up to the present, uh, we're still well under half of the level of activity that we had uh, back there earlier. And so I'm going to go in a little later to some of the requirements to see that become a much fuller recovery than we've had so far. But first, I want to call your attention to the red line below that. Those are the rigs that are uh, drilling wells for gas supply, for natural gas supply. And that, uh, those rigs 
uh, really uh, very stable, mainly because the big buildup in oil supply that we've had had a lot of associated gas with it. So we didn't really have a need to drill more for more gas supply because it was coming in just as we hooked up uh, oil. Now that's not going to go on for much longer. And at some point that's going to change. I'll come back to that and we'll talk about the case of gas later in, the, in this talk. Now, the next area that I want to bring to your attention is what I call self-correcting forces at work. You look at the price distribution of oil over the years, it's very interesting to see. We're talking about how many of the 365 days a year in percentage terms, how many days, trading days we had oil at a price. Take uh, 2013 as an example. And that, that yellow curve tells you if you go all the way over to the left-hand side, that at the very top, in the middle of, the, of that year, in the middle uh, distribution of prices, we were at about uh, somewhere around 8% of our trading days were in that period. If you get to the low end of the range, it was really just a few percent at the low end of the range. But that year, we were enjoying a lot of high-priced oil. That triggered the Thanksgiving surprise of 2014, and we were on the slippery slope to downward pricing because uh, the big oil producers of OPEC and OPEC Plus decided they wanted to take market share away from uh, the shale revolution. And they were successful. And as we went from 2014 to 15, and ultimately bottoming in 16 uh, at mid $20, $20 oil per barrel, uh, we saw a big drop in the activity. Uh, and, and finally, the activity went so low that we were rebalancing the supply demand uh, as a result of the reduced production. And then we started to get a recovery after 2016. It moved up somewhat. And then you can see in 2017, uh, the low end of the range of prices was in the low 40s. The high end was getting close to $60 a barrel. The following year, 2018, we, we started, uh, we had times when oil was in the mid 40s and got all the way up to something in the 70s and began flirting with $80 a barrel. That triggered, again, demand alterations that we had to deal with. So this is what these charts show. The best thing I can make of this is to share with you my belief that the kind of year we're going into right now, 2021, the worst case scenario is something like the blue, the blue line, which shows price distributions ranging from the low 40s, again, to the high 50s or low 60s, and a base case scenario that I think is looking better and better for mid 40s, uh, ranging up into the mid 60s. And that would be my best guess for planning purposes today, just thinking about the forces that are work at work and the resupply or the reestablishment of supply demand balance that's going on. Let's take a moment now and just consider some of the geopolitical realities that the US and the President of the United States is going to be facing. Um, first, we have a fast evolving notion that has been well articulated by the Economist magazine of a petrostate versus an electrostate mindset. And this really refers to China's strategic goal to base its economy on electrifying the transportation system in China and further capitalizing on that by manufacturing electric vehicles and electric batteries 
for the rest of the world to participate in, in that evolution. Uh, and you can see this because they've, they've really uh, looked at it systematically. Uh, over the last decade, they've, they've lined up supplies of rare earths, which are critical to building the batteries that are going to be needed. They've built their competitive advantage in manufacturing, and they've, they've achieved transportation and distribution scales uh, that are such that they can deliver this to the world marketplace. They're delivering goods today very efficiently into Germany and other parts of Europe, into the Middle East. And, and really, uh, you have to uh, recognize that there's a, there's a real plan behind what's happening. And uh, China's uh, ability to organize with a centrally uh, organized autocratic government is impressive. It's not to say I'd want to go live there, but it is to say the accomplishments that they've achieved uh, are to be noted. And their game plan involving the electrostate market is going to be a challenge to other economies and to the Middle East suppliers of liquid fuels as they go more and more toward um, uh, this electrostate market as opposed to the petrostate market where they endured, like the rest of us, uh, some of the uh, price spikes pastimes that induced recessions and other uh, economic adjustments. For, for President Biden to think about what he's going to be dealing with, he clearly has decided, and he announced it yesterday, right after his inauguration, that he would like to go back to the Paris Accord and have the United States become part of the Paris Accord on climate change. Uh, that's, that's going to happen, but I suspect He's going to find that it's not quite the free pass or the free uh, card to get back into that agreement that he might anticipate. When the U.S. comes back in, I think there's a real risk that other members that are there say, well, it's up to the U.S. to negotiate their re-entry. And they're going to find out there are high expectations for the U.S. to be uh, particularly a leading participant in, in the initiative. Now, President Biden wants to do that. But the price of doing that is something he's going to have to take account of because there are things that will impair economic growth and job recovery in this country uh, with that rejoining. I'm not saying it won't happen. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it, but I'm going to say the degree to which we embrace the, the goals of the Paris Accord uh, will be dictated by the realities of what, what else we have to do in order to be an effective member. Similarly, if we're looking at uh, other geopolitical developments, we've got a new form of geopolitical normal that's evolved. Israel today is in a position they've never been in in my adult life until very recently. Uh, when I was in the army, I was well aware that Israel uh, was persona non grata in much of the Arab world. Uh, but now there are four Arab states that have already agreed to recognize the right of Israel to exist as an independent uh, country in the Middle East. How that plays out uh, from here is gonna be subject to other geopolitical developments. Uh, President Biden has talked about getting Iran back into negotiations on a nuclear accord. I think the ability to do that is gonna have second order consequences for how Saudi Arabia views the US and, and its relationship with the US and it may tilt Saudi Arabia into more of a multi, multilateral relationship 
with the likes of China and Russia, as well as the US. So there's knock-on effects that I think have to be really thought out by this administration in order to pull it off and have it be successful. And I'll wrap up with one other example. Turkey really uh, helped bring to a fragile standstill of uh, the civil war that was going on last year in Libya. And in return for that, Turkey is gonna look to have more influence on, Lib on Libya going forward. And that may well be the case. The Greek Turkey is providing military and security assistance to Libya. Uh, the, the quid pro quo will probably involve Libya, Libya having a special energy relationship with Turkey. And that again will be a challenge for the US given that uh, the opportunity to change things in Libya back during the Arab Spring in 2011 was one of the big opportunities that the US missed. At the time, the President, uh, the President Biden was then Vice President of the United States. Now, there, all of this suggests there's gonna be new, numerous leadership uh, tests for the Biden administration. And, and I do think that uh, President Biden has a lot of experience because of his long time in government. And I really hope that he will be successful in these negotiations. Uh, but they are gonna be uh, a, a, a series of tests about making wise judgments with real careful considerations of the trade-offs involved. And that brings me to the last part of this, uh, this particular slide. Uh, he has a big goal of addressing climate change. And therefore, decarbonization initiatives will be high in his thinking. Also, progress on renewables are really an important thing uh, for him, and he's going to be pushing that. And I'll speak to that again in a few minutes. And then there's global recognition and addressing of um, energy uh, poverty. You know, when I was born, there were 2.4 billion people in the world. Today, there's 7.5. We've tripled the population of the planet in a half century, or actually more like 70 years. But 20% uh, of today's population is undergoing a serious case of, of energy poverty. People that don't have the ability in their economic system to afford uh, clean and, and effective energy uh, really have a, a diminished lifestyle. And this is an administration that is empathetic uh, to uh, global poverty in general. And energy poverty involves a trade-off versus some of the climate change objectives that are being put forward. So that's one of those trade-offs that are gonna have to be wisely negotiated, contemplated, and then negotiated. And so all of these things amount to how are they gonna mitigate disruptive changes from some of the policy strategies that are being put in place. And doing that while at the same time embracing an effective rollout of energy of electric vehicles. Let's go now to my wrap-up case for natural gas. Natural gas is, is enjoying a price recovery from a very low level, but still a great bargain in the world. Um, and when you hear about uh, generating electricity um, from renewables, the, the line at the bottom of this chart shows, the blue line at the bottom of the bar chart shows that we expect, and smart people who really talked about this, and you can see that in the source of the, of, of the estimates that are made here, uh, think that we'll have about 20% of our energy uh, being generated by 
renewables uh, by 2030. But there's going to be a push, I think, within this administration and by outside activists for that to be higher, 25, 30, 35, 40%. There's a real problem with you can do that and you can push it, but if you try to do that, it's going to be a problem uh, when you really think about it because you can get ahead of the curve on dealing with the challenge of intermittency. Intermittency means uh, that you don't have 20, uh, 24 seven availability of solar and, uh, uh, and wind energy. Uh, you only have it when the sun's shining and you have it being generated when the sun's shining and when the wind's blowing. So you need to generate a large amount more than you're consuming during those hours. And then you need to uh, store the surplus in various forms in order to make sure that it can kick in when you need it at other times. To do that, you really need to understand that there's also a need for supplemental energy that can come on quickly. Right now, in scale, in large scale amounts, the main source of that is natural gas. It can, it can start up very quickly, the turbines can really generate the electricity. You can't do that with coal, you can't do that with oil, Oil, you can do it to a degree, but it's not a good use of oil. And, and you really cannot do it with nuclear. So uh, the role of natural gas in solving that problem is a really critical. And the supply of natural gas, this is worth looking at later because these slides will be available to you. The LNG is gonna be one of the great business opportunities of the next decade, the next two or three decades. The US has a competitive edge here, as does um, as does Russia and as does uh, Gutter. And ultimately, if there's a transformation uh, in uh, their behavior, Iran can also have a, a really good uh, contributory role uh, to the global economy in this area. So uh, the market needs it. Uh, there's been a bad impact as a chart on the right-hand side shows here. And this is on page 11 of the slides. Um, uh, the, uh, the adverse impact on the right-hand side is, shows how much there's been a cutback in infrastructure build-out, uh, but it's starting to recover. And I think we're gonna have a good, healthy recovery going forward from here. This is one of the big opportunities uh, for traditional players in the oil and gas business to make a difference globally, much as natural gas made a difference during the 90s uh, for the US when the US was able to reduce its CO2 emissions um, to 1992 levels, while all the signatories to the uh, Kyoto Accord were generally in non-compliance with that same accord that they did sign on for and that George Bush declined to sign on for, but our free market approach made us the most compliant um, of the Kyoto Accord, even though we were not bound by it. So, the wrap up is, is, I'll do it rather quickly. Uh, here's what I want to say. Um, I see recovery coming this year. I feel good about it. I think we're heading for a new normal. It'll probably take us more than this year to get to the, uh, the peak benefit of it. It could occur substantially in 2022 and perhaps involve some further progress in 2023 and 2024. I do think we need to establish Confidence in the long-term uh, oil and gas uh, pricing and, and predictability. 
I think we need to see uh, benefits of scale uh, coming from the consolidation wave of chapter 11s that are now underway. And this has been underway for more than a year and the benefits are beginning to show up. Some have occurred this very week. And then um, I think we're gonna be looking uh, to see that there's a credible capital discipline exhibited by the industry this time around that was absent on certain occasions in the last decade or two. And hopefully uh, the capital allocators have learned their lessons from, from when they took their eye off that ball. Despite the ongoing geopolitical and climate change uncertainties, there remains a clear need for natural gas to play a, a constructive and I would say even a transformative role in a lower carbon energy world. And, and because of that, I do think we need to look at what's happening on the, uh, the pipelines, pipeline constraints and strategic opportunities that come up for those companies that can navigate the challenges that are gonna be out there, uh, the balance of this decade in dealing with uh, how to come up with optimizing solutions to the climate change challenges we all face. Thank you very much and I'd be glad to open it up for questions. Okay, thank you, Tom, for that. I think it's a crucial time in, uh, in the industry to, to hear those perspectives. Uh, so thank you for your observations and insights there. I do have uh, a couple or more questions for you, if you got a moment. Sure. Um, first, I think I recall during your talk, you mentioned a price band of 45 to $65 that we could expect in 2021. Did I hear that accurately? Uh, yeah, it was a little higher on the high end, but, uh, but it was, it, I, I talked about my base case expectation of 45 to, to high 50s um, and uh, possibly touching 60 for a while. Uh, and, and then there's a uh, there's another case, uh, more a base case. That was the, uh, uh, the optimistic case was 45 to 65. And the, and the base case below that was, was low 40s to the mid 50s. Okay, well, I want to challenge you a little bit on that because when OPEC met and Russia met at the beginning of the year, we were expecting them and they did this loosen constraints, supply constraints by about half a million a day. But then Saudi Arabia turned around and gave us the gift of uh, cutting an additional million a day off the market. And that was the first time the price of WTI went above $50 in almost a year since early last year. Um, so a little bit artificial reason. So going into this new year, can American producers be confident with $50 plus oil or is it risky business to um, base your margins on OPEC and Russian benevolence? Well, that, that's obviously uh, a loaded question. And I think uh, we've, we've learned not to count on, on others to uh, give us what we want uh, totally. That said, there's some real motivation here the Saudis are remembering the breakup that they had with Russia back in March. So that's, I think, one of the reasons that they went beyond what they promised. They wanted to surprise the market. And it wouldn't surprise me if they choose to do something similar at, at appropriate times throughout this year. The other reason for them to do that is I think that there are old, you know, their earlier times they, they always talked about having spare capacity to uh, close off uh, prices when they get too high, when they get to 75 to 80, $90 a barrel. 
And that's in fact what they did several times in the past. But this time around, uh, they don't have that ability right now uh, where they're producing uh, less than a million, less than 10 million barrels a day. They don't have that ability to go up and sustain the 12 and a half million barrels a day they've traditionally relied on in the past. So I think they're looking to build a new range of shut-in producibility that will help them when there's an overreach in the wrong direction on the high side. Uh, so there's all of that is there, and I think they're making a, a, uh, an adjustment. They, they're not thinking of it as a gift to us. They're thinking of it as a down payment on reestablishing a tighter supply-demand relationship globally because they've got some other challenges coming this year. Libya is going to be coming back in, I think, by four to 500,000 barrels a day. Uh, you've got also uh, Iran, to the degree there's going to be a lightening up of sanctions on Iran, perhaps by the Biden administration. Iran would be able to move more of its oil into the market. And so uh, both of those uh, are, are really important shifts that could occur. And I think the Saudis want to be ready to deal with the challenges that they may present uh, and, and tightening up the supply demand picture right now is, is a worthy goal for them. They're not trying to put the price too high, but they also want to make sure there's enough flexibility in the system to deal with whatever comes down the pike this summer, this fall, a year from now. Okay, thank you. Um, you also spoke uh, on a number of points about the uh, incoming Biden administration and some of their differences. Um, but I wanted to ask you more specifically, um, you know, they messaged all throughout the, uh, the campaign uh, an anti-fossil fuel message. Um, and in the early days of the presidency, we've seen uh, President Biden uh, shut down the Keystone pipeline. And we've also seen uh, uh, a moratorium, at least for a short period of time, on federal lands uh, at this point in time to study that further. Do are, are these symbolic actions at the early stage of the presidency, or do you anticipate an aggressive approach uh, anti-fossil fuels throughout at least the first four years of the presidency? And if so, what might the regulatory landscape look like for American producers? Yeah, I, I was very disappointed by, with the announcement that despite a, a very strong appeal by the Canadian leadership uh, to the US to, uh, to really deliberate on, on the future of the XL pipeline. Uh, but uh, it basically uh, rejected that request and, and moved ahead. I think it was part of an overall goal of the 15 or 17 uh, presidential initiative that he signed yesterday to signal the differences between his administration and the Trump administration. But if this is one of the ones that I think he would have been better advised uh, to say, well, I will take it under advisement and I'm not going to make a decision uh, in my first day in office, uh, but I will, I'll get some in input along the lines that you suggested and make a decision in uh, in the next month or two, preferably three. Uh, he didn't do that. And so it does raise the question, what may also be coming down the road? I do expect that there's gonna be a dynamic tension between his objectives on climate change uh, initiatives for the US and 
uh, wise development of, of energy, uh, fossil fuel energy, where it's really needed. And, uh, and I think there's going to be a debate. Uh, the early signs of what's going on in Congress uh, are important in this regard. Yes, uh, technically, uh, the Democrats do control the Senate because they have the tiebreaker vote of the Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, however, uh, it's a, if there's 50 uh, senators from the Democratic Party and 50 senators from the Republican Party. And you have several senators in each of those parties that could switch sides on a given issue. And so I think the president's gonna be dealing with some big challenges in Congress on big, um, important strategic issues where there's a difference of opinion about what, what the president's preferences are versus the economic realities. That's where I, I gather some hope that uh, beyond the presidential initiatives that could be undone by the very next president, um, there's going to be action required by Congress. And when they try to get congressional action, it's going to be a challenge in many cases to get uh, the full, uh, to get a 50-50 vote where the, where the tiebreaker counts. I think there could very, very well be cases where the votes are 52 to 48, 53 to 47, and, uh, and the tiebreaker uh, doesn't close the gap. So I, I will admit the, the, the problem you mentioned is real, uh, and that's what makes the politics uh, in this country. Uh, I've lived through half a century of watching the fights occur. I expect we'll see some more this year. Okay, good. You also mentioned the energy transition, uh, the push to renewables. I think the general public, when they say energy transition, they imagine that to exclude fossil fuels uh, in the future. Um, the oil and gas sector probably would like to have a part of the energy transition, especially the natural gas industry. But what do, uh, what do you think? Should, uh, do you believe that oil and gas will be a part of the energy transition going far forward into the future? Uh, and if so, what role should it play, both oil and gas, Tom? Well, it's interesting, you know, when, when the President Biden in the last debate of the campaign made that reference to energy transition, it was because he had come out very strongly in favor of uh, some issues involving uh, renewables and, and how, how rapidly to pursue them and so on. And then he corrected it in the Q&A that occurred after that to call it, well, look, I'm talking about a transition. That's gonna have to be defined pretty quickly uh, in the course of this year. I think over the next three to nine months, three to six months more likely, we'll come up, we'll be better able to see what he means by transition versus what uh, might be realistic by transition. That's why I included that chart that showed the growth in renewables. I think we can get to and should get to a 20% penetration of the market by renewable sources. I think to try to push that and force feed our system beyond that uh, becomes increasingly debatable if you try to say, well, let's go to 25 in 10 years, let's go to 30 in 10 years. And somebody says, oh no, we got to think big, let's go to 40 in 10 years. You, we will find, uh, based on my understanding of how the system works, we will create problems 
that will become really major problems for whatever party is in power at the time that we pursue that kind of goal. And I think uh, I think cooler heads will prevail at that point, but it may take some undoing of an overreach on the part of anybody who pursues goals that are excessive on the introduction of, the, of renewables uh, that don't understand how you mitigate the intermittency problem that I talked about earlier. Okay, good. And Tom, I have a question about capital markets for you. Um, despite the, the last few days where the EMP or energy sector has uh, dipped a little bit with some of the new policies being enacted, uh, over the past quarter, we've seen a pretty swift uh, uprising in, uh, in oil and gas stocks. Um, do you think, um, you know, we've seen the rise of price in oil during that time as well. Do you think um, the uh, energy companies have once again found favor on Wall Street? Uh, I think there was a, a, an attitude as we closed the year that they were so far out to the left and up to the right uh, that if, if we really had to, had to pay attention. So I think this is some short-term profit taking, some reaction undoubtedly to some of the announcements that have been made. I learned after, uh, I learned earlier today that uh, the Secretary of Interior has put a stop on all uh, contractual action that the Department of Interior has uh, with, with private um, parties. Uh, that clearly uh, involves a lot of parties in the energy business. So I, I think those kind of actions, uh, which are signaling change, um, the market's paying attention to that. But I don't think it's the end of, uh, of what I do is the prospect of uh, tailwinds generally prevailing as we go through this year. Uh, there'll be some cross currents, there'll be some uh, some moments of doubt, but uh, I think the, in order to get elected, uh, President Biden or the candidate Biden at the time realized he needs to talk about it as a transition. I think he will be either remembering it or be re-reminded of that comment about transition as opposed to uh, cold turkey change. And uh, so I, I don't think it's gonna rise to cold turkey change, even if it looks like it somewhat in the early days of uh, people asserting their preferences in his administration. Okay, well, very good. Well, Tom, I think that concludes our session here today. I wanna to thank you for your time and your insights. Uh, and we look forward to hearing from you again. Thank you. Well, I wanna commend Heart Energy on their using the, the virtual presentation uh, available uh, to, uh, to get the word out on, on some of these things. I really appreciate the last uh, handful of uh, times we've done this. And since we're not out of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic yet, I would welcome the chance to continue to update uh, uh, your audience uh, when we have a chance. Thanks a lot, Steve. You're welcome, Tom. Thank you.